Hello, this is Dr. Patrick Heist from Wilderness Trail Distillery, and you're listening to the Cast Chasers podcast. Hey there, Cast Chasers. For all you bourbon lovers out there, we have another great distillery on the show to talk about their line of bourbons. This week, we have the co-founder of Wilderness Trail Distillery, Dr. Patrick Heist out of Danville, Kentucky. Dr. Heist shares how Wilderness Trail emphasizes the use of locally sourced ingredients and why they choose a slightly different process in mash and proof. We also discuss the importance of that perfect yeast combination during the fermentation stage, and Dr. Heist breaks down the science on several of the distillation steps, giving us a glimpse into the hard work that goes into making the amazing bourbon out of Wilderness Trail Distillery. So pour a dram and settle in. This is the Cash Chasers Podcast. everybody thanks for listening to the cash tasters podcast welcome to the show thanks for downloading thanks for subscribing as always we appreciate having uh, all of you listeners here and we hope you're safe and healthy we are continuing our virtual series here so calling in to my virtual right we have bobby bird how's it going and to my virtual left we have aaron pross hey guys happy to be here all right this week Calling in from Danville, Kentucky, we have a a co-founder of Wilderness Trail Distillery. If you don't know about Wilderness Trail, you are in for a treat this episode. Please welcome Dr. Patrick Heist. Patrick, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. I know Bobby went out and bought some Wilderness Trail. We're excited to uh, we're excited to to taste and and talk about the whiskey. I love to learn a little bit, uh, you know, about the man himself before we start talking whiskey. What led you to distilling, and also uh, your co-founder. Uh, Shane Shane Baker, how do you guys go from rock band to distilling? Is <laughs> what I want to know. Yeah, well, uh, you know, we weren't the typical rock band. We actually, uh, I was finishing up a PhD in plant pathology at the University of Kentucky, and Shane is a mechanical engineer. So, uh, you know, we kind of already had, you know, we weren't the starving rock band. We were just trying to get up on stage every now and then have a good time, maybe get some free beer out of the deal. Um, but we met through a mutual friend who was actually the drummer in the band. And uh, I actually, what, what ended up being the end of the band was I took a job as a medical microbiology professor at medical school in Pikeville, Kentucky. Um, and I left and moved from the, Lexington Danville area over to Eastern Kentucky in Pikeville. And I did that for six years. And, uh, you know, throughout that man, Shane always kept in contact. And, and uh, when we came up with the idea to start our first company, Firm Solutions, uh, that's firm as in fermentation, we market yeast and enzymes and do technical services for hundreds of distilleries and breweries in the United States and around the world. So, um, you know, we started that company in 2000 and it would have been 2006 and grew that company to about 25 employees. And like I said, we do business with hundreds of distilleries and breweries. And uh, that, that's kind of what gave us the background to uh, be confident to, and, and also the capital to start Wilderness Trail Distillery, which we founded in uh 2012. So, uh, and tell us a little bit uh, about Danville and that area. Uh, is that your native area of Kentucky or why is Danville so special? So I was born and a lot of my family is from Northern Kentucky in Covington. And um, my dad, he moved the family down to South Central Kentucky. So I went from, I mean, Northern Kentucky actually has kind of a city accent. Now, where I grew up in uh, South Central Kentucky, Albany, Kentucky, you know, you tend to get a little bit more of the, a little bit more of the accent going on there. So I, I, grew I, w- I would up never have guessed that. Way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's really easy to hide. But, um, you know, grew up down there in Albany, Kentucky, and then went, ended up going to college at University of Kentucky, which I was there for 13 years. I tell my kids, you can get, get a PhD a hell of a lot uh, shorter in 13 years. 
But I went through, you know, I got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree and a Ph.D. Uh, and then, like I said, went on to um, the medical school over there for a few years. But um, that's how we kind of went from rock band to uh, starting a distillery. Gotcha. So let's let's you know, let's talk a little bit about uh, Wilderness Trail and, you know, coming from your uh, scientific background. Right. I- I'm curious. First off, uh, Wilderness Trail Distillery dot uh, com is, is a fantastic website. You guys have so much good information up there uh, on your product, on your process. I urge everybody to go check that website out. But I first off want to talk about the, the collections of yeast. Right. And, and, and from your scientific background, how you had mentioned that you have been collecting these uh, these yeast strains for for a long time uh, without obviously divulging any secrets or whatever. Um, you know, how important is that mixture and that collection of yeast over the years? How, how has that played into uh, Wilderness Trail? Well, you know, it, it starts again at Firm Solutions. One of the things, I mean, not only do we market yeast to, like I said, distilleries and breweries, but we also do a lot of work for distilleries around uh, microbial contamination. You know, my background's in microbiology, so uh, we can't help but to be curious about what's going on in that fermenter outside sure. of what you think's going on in there. I mean, everybody knows about the water and the grains and the yeast. Well, what, you know, 10 other things are in there that you haven't listed on your recipe. So we'll go in there. We have a state-of-the-art laboratory at Firm Solutions, which which is on the site here at Wilderness Trail Distillery. So we get to utilize uh, the lab for Wilderness Trail. But, you know, over the years, we have, uh, you know, I guess, helped distilleries characterize what's going on in their plant with respect to microbial contamination. And that includes bacteria as well as yeast. So, you know, we're also molecular biology capable here. We do genetic engineering, molecular biology. So, you got people around here with hillbilly accents talking about polymerase chain reaction and stuff. It's kind of cracks me up every now and then. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, um, w- over the years, as we've helped distilleries characterize their bacterial and, and microbial contaminants, that's really where we, we amass this collection. So there, there's a lot of things, you know, we talk a lot about the yeast, but there, there is also a lot of influence of bacterial contamination on the flavor of bourbon. And, you know, over the years, as we've helped distilleries understand, you know, there's, there's flavor, but there's also how much alcohol are those contaminants taken away from me. And what if I clean them up, I might be able to get an extra thousand barrels a month, but the, is that going to affect my flavor? So it's a really delicate balance, you know, whenever you're looking at that. But anyhow, we collected, we, we probably have in our collection, I would say 40 something thousand different bacteria and then about 9,000 different yeast strains. Some of those are the strains that are supposed to be in there. And then many of those are yeast that we found in there that weren't supposed to be there. But, but understanding what they are, what they do to you either detrimentally or positively, you know, that's how we've kind of learned uh, a lot about a lot of different type of yeast. When you, um, when you hear distilleries like, you know, Glen Marenji, the, the Alta, and using wild yeast strains, you think, okay, they just went out, they collected some wild yeast. There's some, there's deep science in that because like you're saying, they're not just collecting wild yeast off the top of grain. They're collecting all kinds of stuff. And how dangerous can wild yeast be if you can't regulate it or, you know, understand it? Because I understand that the distilling world and the brewery world really like to focus on that, you know, Saccharomyces, I, I guess, that outside of that norm, it, it I don't know if dangerous is the right word, but it's tricky, right? There's this complexity in there. That's why these, you're chemists. You're not just somebody at a, with a still in the middle of the woods anymore. Yeah. Well, you know, if you look at some of the really historic distilleries, I mean, if you just were to take a, a bucket out there and do your first fermentation, it would be a mess. You know, it, even if you got some good, the right yeast in there, it would probably be a mess. And it might take a while of you transferring that material before you kind of get a homeostasis. You know, you kind of reach some equilibrium of the organisms that you end up getting in there, whether they came from the air or whether they came from the grain or the water. 
So if you look at some of those really historic, like Scotch distilleries and, and things that are saying, hey, we're, we're depending on wild yeast, they probably already have a, uh, a established a uh, kind of their own wild yeast there. Uh, in, in the same vein as the yeast, I want to go back to the, the, the website again, because I, I, I mentioned earlier just, you know, how much you great information is up there about your process. But I want to quote a little bit. Uh, in addition to the yeast strains, uh, premium selection of seed grade corn, local wheat and rye varietals. Also, um, the uh, local rye from Walnut Grove Farms, malted barley from the northern states, water from Kentucky's Limestone Springs, obviously. How important is it to Wilderness Trail for the local source grains and, and things like that? It's, I mean, it's, it's like at the top of our list. You know, Shane and I, we're both, I mean, I've lived all over Kentucky. Um, Shane, he's lived mainly in this area. I think getting back to one of the earlier questions, how do we end up in Danville? You know, Shane already lived here and I moved away to teach the med school. And then it was just convenient for us to move back here. This is where the band played. So that was also a little bit of foundation, you know. Um, but Shane already lived here. And this is close to Lexington. I really like the Lexington area. I'm only about an hour and a half from where I grew up. I've got some property down there on Lake Cumberland I go to pretty frequently. But, you know, when we started the distillery, We've always been very locally minded. I mean, we're entrepreneurs, but we've always done things for the community as much as possible, you know, take part in different events. Now that we've got the distillery, we host a lot of, of different things, but having local ingredients is hugely important to us. And when we started, you know, we were only grinding, let's say, 800 pounds a day. So, you know, the local, the farm we work with now, you know, they're bringing us, you know, a few pallets of uh, you know 50 pound bags at the first and now we're grinding 160,000 pounds of grain every day seven days a week wow. so that is a huge impact to the local economy and you know if you look at so we started off with our weeded bourbon which uh, is the yellow label a lot of people know them by what labels they have but this is a single barrel there it is bottled and bond <laughs> weeded bourbon we always put the mash bills on the side of our bottle. So it's 64, uh, 64 corn, 24 wheat, 12% malted barley. But, you know, we started with this because wheat is what we could get locally. They don't really grow a lot of rye in Kentucky. So most Kentucky distilleries use rye in their recipe, but we're one of only just a couple that uses Kentucky grown rye because it's just hard to get. But we wanted to at least try it. And, you know, my background is in agriculture and our farmers are really good farmers. And, you know, if there's not much of a market for rye, then they're not going to try to grow. It. You know, they're better off growing something like wheat. So we worked with the local farm and that, that farm is called Caverndale Farms. That's probably on our website. But they are a seed farm. One of the last few family owned uh, seed farms, it's where people get their seeds to grow their crops. So them being seed farmers, you know, which the seed is, that's fine for us. It's not like we're using the kind that's got the fungicide on outside of it you buy to put in your home garden. But um, they were able to grow a variety that does pretty well around here. And, um, and it really sets us apart. Like, you know, all the other, dist every, any distillery in Kentucky makes great whiskey. There's no doubt about it. It's just the interesting differences between one and the next. and our the fact we use kentucky and locally grown rye it's it it just gives a little bit of a different flavor but that's hugely important for us we're, we're a kentucky proud operation and um you know we do a lot of things for the state of kentucky and are very proud to be able to showcase kentucky ingredients now you have a very impressive i mean resume ted talks college kentucky university when you went for microbiology were you thinking whiskey or were you, was it a different direction? Were you even drinking whiskey at that time? I mean, I'm assuming 21, you grabbed your first bottle like the rest yeah. of us. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I didn't drink a lot of whiskey early on. I definitely have always been a beer drinker, you know, which you got to make beer before you can distill it to make whiskey. So definitely I was not thinking about that when I was, getting my bachelor's degree in microbiology and I tell I work with students all the time I teach classes at different universities and 
do a lot of educational seminars. And one thing, you know, a lot of students come to me and like, man, you know, you seem like you had it all figured out whenever you're getting your bachelor's degree. I said, man, I didn't have shit figured out. <laughs> all I did, I was actually uh, driving an escort truck, delivering mobile homes whenever I was uh, getting my bachelor's degree in microbiology. And uh, so if you if you got a single wide trailer and need help with your underpinning, uh, let me know. I'll be happy to come help you out. <laughs> No, no, no. Now we're talking about this. So underpinning. I need it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the skirting around the bottom yeah, that hides yeah. the wheels and the stuff on a mobile home. Welcome to Mobile Home Cast Chaser Podcast. Is that what we're calling it now? Yeah, that's why well, I was escort truck. So you know the little trucks that's got their blankets. Oh, the on chaser, the yeah, yeah, yeah. The wide loads. That's right. ah, so that's, that's right. what I was doing. But when I got my when I got my bachelor's degree. I remember looking for jobs, and uh, the the one that that kind of stuck sticks out for me that I remember seeing was a quality assurance manager at a laboratory for Chef America, the company that makes hot pockets. Yeah. <laughs> so, man, I was like, I'm not going to be. I mean, nothing against hot pockets or nothing, but I was like, man, I've got it. There's got to be something better, you know, in the yeah. future. So. You'd, you would have been on a different podcast, that's for sure. Truck Chasers. Podcast. <laughs> We're going Truck Chasers podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. But anyhow, very haphazardly, uh, I didn't really I didn't really get good grades as an undergrad. I think I graduated with like a 2.3 GPA, so I wasn't a good candidate for graduate school. But one thing that I did as an undergrad is I was a teaching assistant, so I got a lot of teaching experience. And I got a lab job like the first year I ever went to college. So by the time I had my bachelor's, which took me down there six years, I had about five, five and a half years of lab experience. So I took a job, a summer job when I got my bachelor's degree working for the Department of Plant Pathology at the University of Kentucky, doing like uh, spray applications on tobacco and fruit trees, which was, you know, and, and I did a lot of work on golf course greens, like golf turf grasses and stuff. So um, I did that for the summer, and I guess they recognized, wow, man, this guy's got some good lab skills. And, you know, seemed, I mean, I had a mullet at that time, so I had a lot to overcome in terms of uh, impressions. We all did at some point. It's okay. Man, I had a mullet before Billy Ray Cyrus ever came out with Aggie Breaky Heart. I mean, it's very possible he could have seen me somewhere about four years before that song ever came out. <laughs> I feel like if you wrote a book, and I'm, I'm I'm sure there's a possibility of it, one chapter is bourbon, and I hope every other chapter is every other part of your life. And I want you to call that book "This Mullet." I'm taking it places. So far, oh, yeah. I'm I'm cur- more curious about the whole world around your bourbon than I am the bourbon itself. Oh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, I wanted. I'll finish my story real real quick. Uh, but anyway, that job in plant pathology that I took. Like two weeks before school started, one of the professors that I worked with, his name was Dr. Bill Neesmith, and he's a tobacco specialist at UK. And he just flat out asked me, he said, hey, man, you want to be a graduate student in our department? And I said, well, you know, what does that mean? He said, well, we'll give you a stipend, we'll pay your tuition, and you get a laptop. And I was like, shit, dude, sign me up. So I got my master's degree, and I was like, hell, I'm going to be unemployed if I don't stay around and get a PhD. So. <laughs> So I very haphazardly fell into that and then just kind of looked step by step. I've always been real good at, it, at recognizing opportunities whenever they came along. So, you know, uh, being in band with Shane and then once we conceptualized Firm Solutions, just having the sense to, you know, who would be a good business partner? You know, Shane was, you know, perfect. You know, we're good friends. Uh, he's got good process knowledge. You know, he's a mechanical engineer. He used to work in venture capital. So he was integral in helping raise the capital when we first started our business i want to i want to go back to the whiskey itself um a little bit here um so you you brought it up earlier and it's something that i had noticed you've got the mash bill on the side of your bottles and there's not many distilleries uh that do that um Cast Chasers uh, from the start has always been about, you know, just getting people more information about what they're drinking, um, putting people in the same room that are, you know, just sort of starting out enthusiasts, uh, putting people in this, those people in the same room with, you know, people have been doing it for years, the distillers and that sort of thing. 
And, you know, it's, it's one thing that, you know, is a struggle for a lot of people is what, what kind of whiskey am I drinking? You know, you can't tell by, you know, all of the whiskeys, you know, what's, what's on the, what is this? Okay. I've got, you know, Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. Uh, this one's bottled in bond. So I kind of know what that means and all that sort of thing. But, you know, is it weeded? Is it, you know, what, what, what is this whiskey? And so like one thing I, I really, really like about yours is you do have that mash bill on the side, on the side of your bottles. Can you talk about that and just sort of your, your approach to bringing uh, the whiskey to the masses, I guess? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one thing that we, that is integral to, to wilderness trail and, and, you know, our organization in general is all the knowledge that we've got that goes into making our bourbon. So it only makes us look better if we tell everything. We don't, we're, we're trying to be as transparent as possible. I mean, we've taught hundreds of other distilleries how to make whiskey. I mean, if you want, if you love our rye, I'll teach you how to make it. I mean, it's, it's not really, uh, not just me, but anybody here, you know, we've got a lot of people that, that do training and different things here. But we're very transparent and we want, I mean, there's really no, there's really nothing that we would be afraid to tell somebody because even if I tell you everything that we do, if you go start your own distillery and do that, and I hope you do, because then we can sell you yeast and stuff. But um, it's not going to be the same if you don't use the exact same grains that we have. If you don't, I mean, what kind of milling equipment, you, you might have a roller mill and we have a hammer mill. You know, you've got a different cook protocol. How long are you going to cook it for? What temperatures are you going to bring each of those different grains to? How effectively are you breaking starch down into fermentable sugars? Do you have bacterial contamination? If so, what is it compared to what we have? You know, I mean, there's so many different things. I mean, we're not afraid to tell it. First of all, if we tell somebody everything we do, they're probably not going to remember it anyway, unless it's on Cash Chaser's podcast. <laughs> Uh, or another one. Uh, but, you know, we, we really take pride in being uber transparent and, and just kind of that that's the that's our shtick, I guess you could say. Uh, that makes sense. Absolutely. Talking talking about the mash bill, uh, I there's a couple different distinctions with your process, your distillery and others out there. But I want to ask you about um, the uh, infusion mashing process. Versus, you yep. know, versus some of the others. Can you tell us a little bit of why, why you went that route? Yeah. So first of all, infusion mashing is where we, and, and I don't know that, I, I don't know that, that we weren't the first ones to do it. I mean, there, there's different ways of describing infusion mashing, like beer. If you're making a beer, when you infuse the grains in with the water, that's, that's also called infusion mashing. But what we do, we actually bring our water temperature up to a maximum. The maximum temperature that, that our mash is going to be at is the water at the very beginning. Because once our water is a certain temperature, we're going to start, we're going to cut the heat and we're going to start adding our grain to it. And that grain addition itself will cause that temperature to go down a little bit. And that's a good thing because we're going to add our, you know, so we'll start adding our corn. Then we'll add our, we'll bring the temperature down, which if adding the grain helps bring it down a little bit, we're kind of using the grain to get our temperature down. So it's an energy saving step. And also we're not applying intensive heat while the grain's in there. So um, it, it, we also use very scientific temperatures as well. You know, what do we try to do in that mashing process? We're trying to convert starches into fermentable sugar. And so what is the gelatinization temperature of cornstarch? It's about 176 to 187 degrees. So why would I want to bring that up to boiling? Those other distilleries and, and even breweries. Now, breweries, it's different because Somebody making beer, you're making it out of a clear wort. You're taking off the grains before fermentation. You're taking off the grains before you bring it up to that high boiling temperature. And that's good for beer makers because they got a lot more to worry about in terms of contamination because the way that we do things, keeping all those grains in there, it's less susceptible 
to getting contaminated because the pH is a little bit different. And then if you go to uh, sire mash where you're adding in some of the previous batch, you're, you're making it even more acidic. So we're doing things in the, uh, even in the mashing process that are very different than other distillers. So I got a quick question yeah. for you out of curiosity. It just made me think of it. You were talking about, you know, the pieces of that puzzle. I, uh, and I'm not going to impress you, but, you know, stand by for this. I've made beer twice in my kitchen. So kind of a pro. <laughs> anyway, the third time I made it, um, I, it went bad. I thought it went bad. So I had to dump it, had to dump five gallons of beer down my, it was just infected. It smelled terrible we don't really talk about it with our distiller friends and people we have on the show. What does that look like on the big scale? You know, when it does a batch go bad, I mean, do you have a, is there, is, or do you catch it early? Are you, you obviously I'm not a scientist, so I'm not there at every step but, and you're checking it from the mic, you know, uh, micro level, but does a batch go bad? Is that something that's common? Is it as heartbreaking as it was for me? Well, or is it just part of the business? Well, you know, by personal experience that a batch of beer can go bad. Right. So beer can definitely go bad. And it, but it takes uh, it kind of takes screwing up, though, to get it there. Um, so in distilled spirits, you know, that's our job is to help distilleries. Uh, and, and we get so a distillery might go 10 years without having a bad, a, a super bad batch. You can have just like it depends on what your definition of a bad batch. Like, hey, if I'm supposed to make 100 barrels per fermenter but I only get 85. Is that a bad batch or do, do I only get 820 out of it before I call it a bad batch? Or does it have to taste like crap before I'll call it a bad batch? There's different kind of reasons why something would be bad. So if it's bad because it tastes bad, that's the worst kind there is. There's also bad because I lost my ass on alcohol. You know, okay. It's makes a pretty damn good distillate, but I only got four bottles when I was supposed to get six barrels. You know, so there's different ways of looking at it. But whenever you're leaving the whole grains in there, I mean, how many beer companies do you know of where you can do a tour and you're going to be looking down into open top fermenters? It does not happen. Because they have to, yeah, yeah, because they're the clear wart that you're using for beer making, which again, that's after the grains have been removed. The starch is still in solution, but you heat it up above boiling to completely kill off everything. And that material is like microbiological broth medium. It, if anything gets in there, it is just going to exponentially grow like crazy, which is why you want to get the yeast in there, get it doing its thing as quickly as possible. Now, the other thing you have to consider is enzymatic conversion of, of starch in the grain to fermentable sugar. You know, starch is a complex polysaccharide made up of glucose subunits and you got to cut that up and release the glucose two glucose is connected together it's called maltose and when you're using relying on the enzymes in the malted grains which beer they use 100 percent malted grains distilleries you know like think about most rye recipes 95 five it's only five percent malted barley so if you're relying now we use and you can see it on the side of our bottles we use 11 to 12 percent barley but we're not really relying on the enzymes in that barley if, if, because we supplement with enzymes. We market enzymes. You put a little tiny bit of alpha amylase in the cook process, a little bit of glucoamylase in the fermentation process, and you don't have to rely on the, and I'm pointing this way because I got bottles sitting over here. Uh, you don't have to rely on the enzymes that are in the malt. We still want to have the malted barley in there because it is a component of our flavor. But we're going to be supplementing with enzymes, so we're not as worried about, you know. So those are some just different dynamics of, you know, beer making versus whiskey making. And and we're fortunate enough to know all this because, again, if we had, if you'd have bought Firm Solutions yeast whenever you'd have made your beer, we would have likely provided you with a formula, a recipe, dude, here. If you do this and you don't deviate from this instruction sheet, you will be successful. Patrick, uh, one more thing I want to ask you about is your rye whiskey. So your rye whiskey enters the barrel at 100 proof. Why, uh, why the lower proof? Well, um, so that would be the 
what we call our green label or rye whiskey, uh, which is 56 percent, uh, 56 percent rye, 33 percent corn, 11 percent malted barley. But we knew that we were going to at the very beginning offer the rye as single barrel barrel strength. OK. And personally, and Shane, I believe, would agree we like single barrel barrel strength, but I, I mean, you know, like 136 and those big proofs, you know, I like those, but I just feel like, you know, normally I'll put a little ice in there or I'm, you know, it's just easier to drink a lower proof cask strength product. So that's one reason we wanted it to be cask strength, but not super high proof. <clears throat> now that's a little detrimental because you end up having to spend more money on barrels in a year's time, but there's other scientific reasons. And that is, you know, if you consider the different types of chemicals in the wood that you're trying to extract, some of those are alcohol soluble. Some of those are water soluble. So having that right balance of alcohol and water in there actually aids in extraction. There's also different, amounts of evaporation that would occur depending on what your you know alcohol to water ratio is so that's another consideration and uh but but really a lot of it was more around putting it in and getting a lower barrel proof because we go in now like our we're going in at 110 proof on our bourbons and some of the rye, like if, if you get a bottle of rye that's 120 proof, our rye, which I saw a friend send a picture from Arizona yesterday, and theirs was 120 proof. So that might have been one where we experimented putting it at 110, but our rye goes in at 100 and for those reasons. So, you, um, Patrick, you're talking a lot about, you know, experimenting with this and obviously from a, you know, a scientific background, which, you know, we're finding out every day, there's more and more distillers that are, you know, come from a scientific background. Um, are, are there particular parts of the process that you really enjoy experimenting with uh, more than others? Um, like whether that's, you know, like barrels, the mall, whatever the case may be, are, are there particular parts of the process that you enjoy experimenting with more than other parts of the process and why? Well, um, you know, we definitely do a lot of experimentation and, and a lot of that takes place in the laboratory. And so we can do things, you know, if I'm going to just fart about, you know, I don't want to screw up a 20,000 gallon fermenter, you know, on, on some type of a strain, you know, if I want to, test out a, a yeast that's never been used by mankind you know i don't want to risk 60 barrels so we'll do a lot of that work in the laboratory on a small scale to where you know we get the information and we're like okay now we're ready to bump this up to a you know a big scale so there's a lot of different things you know different yeast uh there's bacteria that you can incorporate into there for flavor and, and other reasons so a lot of that stuff goes on in the lab so we got that kind of experimentation, but there's also kind of stuff that, uh, you know, we've got experiments going with our barrel company, Independent Stave. We've got several different experiments with them, uh, with controls that we're constantly sending them samples and, um, you know, evaluating how are the tests compared to the controls. But there's also a lot of ancillary things. Probably one of the biggest projects that we have going on right now and, and Shane, he's more over on it because he's the engineer and, and he's done a lot of work on it is, you know, the stillage that we generate, you know, the leftover, you know, water in the grain after you take the alcohol out. That's like one of the biggest issues a distillery has. Whenever you get some size to you, you know, we generate, we're doing about 100,000 gallons of stillage every day. So when you consider 15 truckloads a day having to manage that, especially in the springtime when the grass starts growing again, it's like, you know, you got farmers that are like, well, I was going to take it, but, you know, I've got plenty of grass now. And so, you know, we have to manage that. So one of the biggest areas of experimentation is how do we make that stillage more valuable so that because we're just giving it away. And if, if, if we can't give it all away, then we have to pay to have it hauled away. So how can we pull water out of that material, make it more valuable 
And what else is in there that's like a little diamond in the rough? Um, one thing that we're doing besides liquid separation technology, uh, we're pioneering a project right now that uh, uses uh, ultrafiltration technology rather than centrifuges to pull out the solids. It's, it's a really, it's, we're the only distillery that I'm aware of that has this technology. This will be revolutionary if it, if it, you know, ends up working, it looks wow. really good. But we also are working with a company that thinks that they can make activated carbon out of the stillage. So, I mean, there's all kinds of potential. So there's a lot of experimentation that we do that the average whiskey drinker, they're not sitting at home thinking, man, that sucks they have to get rid of a hundred thousand gallons of stillage every day you know that's the back end of the plant that you really wouldn't think about unless we you do <laughs> we think about it yeah yeah well, now you will <laughs> I'm, I'm just their stillage must have been off <laughs> i can almost taste the stillage in this <laughs> yeah they left too much stillage in there but that sire mash if you recycle some of that stillage back around that's basically sire mash, and that's something else that's on our bottle. It says sweet mash. So we start with all fresh water each batch rather than incorporate stillage. I'm curious about the activated carbon. What's the benefit there? Or the well, um, activated carbon, especially now with all this bull crap going on with the virus. I mean, uh, good timing being a microbiologist once again. <laughs> stumbled onto another uh, little gold mine at the end of the rainbow. Yeah. But um, you know, if you look at, I mean, anything that has carbon in it, you can make activated charcoal. And and that's used in filtration systems. You know, a lot of distilleries even use that. What if you could turn your stillage into activated carbon, and then that's the carbon that you need for your, your charcoal filters? You know, what about Brita water filters in your refrigerator or other, you know, uh, filtration systems that use activated carbon? There's a That's a huge market and a high-value product. You just need carbon to make it. So there's a lot of industries that have leftover, you know, like uh, the sugarcane industry has all that leftover bagasse is what they call it. It's the uh, leftover stalks after they squeeze the juice. There's different, um, you know, like um, nut processing places that have a lot of nut shells and stuff that they can use to make into activated carbon. And then stillage has got a lot of fiber and different things. It's, it's just, nobody's ever really done it so there's those kind of things uh that we experiment with that not only are going to be beneficial to our distillery but then that's technology that we can market through firm solutions to other distillers we just try to make money <laughs> way possible nothing wrong with that i've been waiting on one distiller to just say that to say <laughs> this poetic crap out of the way i'm just trying to make some money man <laughs> well you got to make money if you're gonna have a damn distillery because that's right you know we uh we used to have money now we got a distillery yeah right <laughs> got a load of whiskey <laughs> we, we always thought that you know worst scenario we'd have unlimited birthday and christmas presents for any friend or relative for the end of time and that's okay too <laughs> yeah it's not a it's yeah, not a bad thing to have at all uh, I, I'm 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 curious, and I'll 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 step on Bobby before he uh, <laughs> before he jumps in here. Um, what? And you 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 touched on sort of you know where where you where you kind of came from to begin with, but why? I guess I guess why why bourbon? Why did you why what drew you to bourbon specifically? And you know whiskey, but I mean you know what drew you to bourbon? What drew you to doing that specifically? And if the answer is you know if there's money in it, then great. But um, what did you have a previous relationship with with whiskey? You know that drew you to it. I'm I'm just sort of specifically related to that. Where where did that come from? Why did you decide to do a distillery and do uh, whiskey? Yeah. Well, um, you know, a couple different reasons. One of them is a matter of heritage. I mean, we're in Kentucky. We're from Kentucky. Our families are from Kentucky. Um, my family doesn't have a deep, I guess, relationship with distilling. My great-grandfather worked at what is now MGP, the uh, Lawrenceburg used to be Seagram's plant back in probably the 30s and 40s. Um, and outside of that, I don't know of any other, you know, outside of bootlegging and, and little making it in the hills type of stuff. But uh, Shane's family's actually got a very rich uh, history in uh, whiskey, in bourbon. And actually his grandmother 
started out with the um, started out at what's called what was called the Kentucky River Distillery, which eventually got bought out, and then she ended up in Shively at the Stitzel Weller Distillery. Worked there her whole life and retired from there. And his and if I'm not mistaken, she might have even met her his grandfather there. He was he also worked at the distillery, and there was um, relatives. Shane, you know, he's got stories about when he was a kid and his parents would take him up there to see his grandma and they, you know, visit, you know, what, <clears throat> where they made old Fitzgerald and Pappy Van Winkle and, and Weller and all that stuff. So he had a history with it. Um, once we got into firm solutions, you know, at, being a yeast provider, you want to go with the customer that it buys the most yeast. And so those customers were the fuel alcohol distillers. So there's about 200 fuel alcohol distilleries here in, in uh, North America, and they're, they're huge consumers of yeast. So Firm Solutions did a lot of business and still does with the fuel alcohol industry. Now, they are highly sophisticated. A typical fuel alcohol customer of ours makes about 400,000 gallons of 200 proof alcohol every day. So these are massive distilleries. And when you're making that much alcohol, you want to make sure you're draining every drop out of every grain that you're putting in there. Because the other challenge for those guys is they're selling it at a dollar to a dollar fifty per gallon of 200 proof alcohol to make a profit, especially now that gas prices are really low. So us, on the other hand, that same amount of alcohol that they're having to sell and make a profit at a buck or a buck fifty, we're paying $27 just in federal excise tax on that same gallon of what they're selling. So we got a lot of sophistication over on the fuel alcohol side. And then we started working with more and more with beverage alcohol distilleries. I mean, a lot of rum production down in Florida and Puerto Rico. Um, I mean, we've worked with companies in Thailand that are making alcohol from cassava and all these different things. Uh, there's non-alcoholic uh, fermented beverages like kombucha and kefir. You know, we do a lot of work with those kind of places. But being here in Kentucky, you you can't help but to little by little get in in on bourbon production. I mean, you grow you grow up around it. Like I said, Shane's got heritage in that. But when we kind of started thinking about building a distillery, we just started really getting serious about visits in the other distilleries. Not only from hey man, let's try to get their yeast business. But let's also kind of learn a little bit more about, you know, we're already, I mean, we've got open door with all of our customers. And so that was very, I mean, you know, we got friends at about any distillery you can name. If we want to call them up and be like, man, what's your two-year-old taste like? We're kind of curious because ours is two years old now and we don't know if it's any good or not. And we got people at the biggest distilleries you can name that any day of the week we can go right over there. And, and we're going to show them that same courtesy if they have any problems. And so that kind of really brought us into the camaraderie and the, the just the community of Kentucky bourbon. You know, we, we're members of the Kentucky Distillers Association, so we have regular meetings with all the other. Now we're on the Kentucky Bourbon Trail, the actual big one. So nice. we're in meetings with all the other big making decisions, um, you know, casting votes right alongside of those big guys. So being in that community just not only gave us the encouragement to have our own distillery, but also just real made us realize what a great community it is. And if you're in Kentucky, you know, what are we going to do? Make uh, rum or, I mean, we do make rum, but you know, what are we going to do? Try to get, uh, you know, make Kentucky vodka popular. Right. Right. <laughs> I'm curious, Patrick. So, you know, obviously being in Kentucky, you're in the the uh, the land of bourbon. But as you in your travels and with your interactions with other customers, is there another part of the country that has impressed you or left an impression on you? Because we talk a lot on the show about um, just how much the uh, micro distilleries are popping up in in different areas of the country, and you know, places like Vermont that you may not expect has uh is, is producing some great product but from your perspective and especially uh with the firm solutions is, is there another part of the country that has impressed you or left an impression on you yeah i mean you know if you look at the availability 
of grains. And, you know, I mean, if you're in Maryland, you could get grains from anywhere in the world, really. So everybody can get good grains. Um, if you've got a good process, going all the way through producing a quality distillate, you, anybody can do that. Now, it might cost you more money. You know, if you're in Alaska and you got to import corn, it's going to cost you a hell of a lot of money. Sure. So, you know, maybe you want to do something more along the line of an American single malt because you have more barley available to you. But, uh, but you can get grains anywhere in, in the United States. So we have customers in almost every state that are producing quality alcohol. You know, you had a guest on last night from, from Delaware, and it sounded like they have a great operation. Um, I just did a training for the Maryland Distillers Guild at Lost Ark Distillery over in Columbia, Maryland, uh, probably three or four months ago before the sickness hit. I was glad I actually got a couple trails. My TED talk, man, that was like right when everybody was scattering, man. I'm glad to be able to work that in. But you can make good whiskey. Uh, I was on a podcast uh, last week, and I was talking about, you know, my favorite new whiskeys. And I mentioned Frey Ranch Distillery. They're out in uh, in Nevada. Hmm. And this was towards the end of the podcast. The damn podcast didn't start till like 9 or 10 o'clock. So <laughs> there was some bourbon that, that got drank. <laughs> And I was talking about the distiller. I mean, I know these people, and I'm like, I'm like, yeah, they're out in Nebraska. I was like, it's the other <laughs> state that starts with N E that ends with an A. Close, dumbass. close, right? <laughs> yeah. So apologies to Frey Ranch. Right. They, they are not in Nebraska. They are in Nevada. So it, let's get that straight here on the cash chases. Yeah, right. <laughs> but that's one. That's a great one, man. I mean, I visited them when I went out to Nevada to give my TED talk. Uh, Bentley Heritage Distillery out there. Now, you know, like I said, you can get to a great distillate if you know what you're doing. And you have, the, and all of our customers, we're going to make damn sure that you're going to produce a great distillate. That's our job. Is That's what we do in Firm Solutions to help make sure that happens. But going into the barrel and depending on the climate, and that's what my TED talk was about. Any listeners that want to look up Pat Heist TEDx, you can see that it's a 10-minute talk on how climate affects bourbon. And that's where you run into issues in other states when you're talking about making bourbon or other whiskeys. You know, you can make good gin or vodka or whatever in other states. Now, there are probably over a thousand other distilleries outside of the state of Kentucky that are making bourbon whiskey in the United States. But Kentucky still produces 96% of the world's bourbon. So that just shows you that thousands of other distilleries combined aren't even making a 20th of what 10 of the distilleries in Kentucky are making. Hmm. So it's just, so yeah, there's great whiskey all over the place, but if they, if those are such small place, I mean, there are some like Maryland, you got Sagamore spirits there. That's probably the biggest distillery in the state of Maryland. There's not too many other distilleries in other states, like you go to Cutwater in San Diego, you know, the guys that sold out of Ballast Point uh, Brewery started a Cutwater. They actually just sold Cutwater. Um, but that's that's got the same size still as what they have at Sagamore. You know, those places are just kind of dotted around. Those are 24-inch columns. We run, we started off with a, well, we started with a 250-gallon pot still, which we got one to two barrels a day off of. Then went to an 18-inch diameter Vendome column still that got us up to about 40 barrels a day. <laughs> then we uh, recently put in a 36-inch Vendome, the same size as what they run at Maker's Mark. Uh, we put one of those in, and we process three 20,000-gallon fermenters through that sucker every day, seven days a week, <laughs> which gets us about 200 to 220 barrels of whiskey every day. We're the 14th largest bourbon producer currently. Wow. Wow. Can't help but sm smile at that statistic. <laughs> Staggering. Oh, That's amazing. It's, it's, it's when, when numbers start losing meaning to me. I'm just yeah. like, I don't, okay. I know what 10 barrel, I know what 100 barrels look like. And then I just, many. yeah, no, that's awesome. That's about, uh, we make equivalent to about what will become 50,000 fifths every day. Wow. Oh, that's incredible. There's a thirsty world out that's there. Right. That's right. That's <laughs> right. 
Hey, Patrick, listen, as we wrap up the show, um, I just want to give you the chance for all our listeners out there who may be new to Wilderness Trail. Um, if you could sum up uh, your distillery and uh, just why why Wilderness Trail to leave a, a little lasting impression on our listeners. Yeah. So, um, you know, why Wilderness Trail? First of all, if you're going to come to Kentucky, I would uh, recommend that you, you know, have set in the time to visit several distilleries, you know, the Kentucky Bourbon Trail, the Kentucky Bourbon Trail Craft Tour. There's a lot of great distilleries here and we're all in a fairly tight uh, geographical area. But, you know, the thing about Wilderness Trail that that I think listeners would really enjoy is, again, just kind of get more into the science of it. We, we do a good job and all of our tour people do a great job of really very chronologically taking the guests through the process. And, and there's really no question that we can't answer. Mm. And, you know, if, if somebody's if one of our tour guides or uh, people has an issue, then they're going to be tapping me on the shoulder. Or they're going to be tapping Shane on the shoulder. If we got some, you know, super bourbon fanatic that that knows or wants to know more than the average, we're going to have that. And then, you know, it's, it's just a great overall experience. The grounds here are absolutely beautiful. But, uh, you know, us as well as the other distilleries here in Kentucky, I mean, we're, we're all about, you know, providing a great experience. Very well said. Uh, we, strongly, awesome. we strongly urge all of our listeners, if you get down there, get down to the Danville area, check out Wilderness Trail Distillery. In the meantime, the, the website's wilderness-trail-distillery.com. There's a lot of great information uh, on on the whiskey being made out there. In addition to the rum and uh, vodka as well, right? Uh, we have that going on down there, but we strongly urge everybody to go check that out. And uh, yeah, Dr. Patrick Heiss, we greatly appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so Thanks, much. buddy. This was, uh, Thanks. This, this was uh, very fun, and we appreciate talking to you about it. That was awesome. All right. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thank you to everybody out there listening to the Cash Chasers podcast. We will see you next week. And remember, Cash Chasers, it's not about finding that perfect dram. It's all in the chase. Chase.